0: This is Ascension Sunday, and I'll be mentioning the Ascension text. But um, the gospel reading I think um, gives us an, gives us an opportunity to uh, to really reflect on one of the implications of the Ascension of Christ. And it's part of Jesus' priestly prayer in John 17. So the text begins John 17, verse 20. Listen to the word of God. I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of all those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be all one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me, the glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one, as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may become completely one, so the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that those also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory which you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made your name known to them, and I will make it known so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. May God bless the hearing and reading of a holy word. Let us pray. Lord, open up our hearts and our minds and our souls that we may encounter you, the living Lord, through your word proclaimed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How many of you were told as a child or were in churches where you were told that you should ask Jesus into your heart? How many of you asking Jesus into your heart? Okay, now, for most kids, that works. It works for me. And maybe for even many adults, this idea of asking Jesus into your heart. Though so I remember a mother sharing, me, sharing with me that her little girl came home terrified from Sunday school. And when her mother asked, what's wrong? She said, Jesus is inside of me, and you need to get him out right now. <laughs> Now, I've often wondered, you know, kids touring the model of the heart in the Franklin Institute, you know, if you're in that big car, you're looking around, and going, well, maybe Jesus, you know, you could play hide and seek with Jesus in that thing. Now, of course, the idea that Jesus is in our heart was never meant to be literal. The idea that God is in you and me, we'll talk more about that next week on Pentecost, when we talk about the significance of of the gift of the Holy Spirit. And how Jesus has promised to be with us always is fulfilled. So this idea that the Spirit of Christ is with us is a very important and and essential idea of what the church means. Just as Christ is in us, we are in Christ. That's part of what Jesus is teaching here in John 17. But Christ is more than an idea or a notion. That's the trouble with The idea of the cosmic Christ, or the Christ that's in all of us, the fire idea, if you would. Because the resurrected Christ is a person, and that's very important, because if we have a hope in the resurrection, it really is tied to the idea that Christ rose from the dead. And that because Christ is a person, people or persons have to be somewhere, right? And that's part of the importance of the ascension day. It's also the hope that heaven is not just some sort of drop in the cosmic sea. If Jesus, the resurrected Christ, is somewhere, right? The implication is that when we die and at the time of the resurrection, we will be somewhere as well. Now, every week in the Creed, we state he ascended to heaven and is seated on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Sometimes people almost picture that literally, but first of all, God doesn't have a right hand, correct? Because God is spirit, right? He doesn't have, you know, I mean, what's the right side or left side of God? It's, it's a symbolic title, right? It, it connotes authority. It connotes power. It connotes that Christ has been made Lord. Now, the event of the ascension is recorded in Luke Acts at the end of the Gospel of Luke, at the beginning of the book of Acts. It's also talked about in a verse, one verse, in the longer ending of the Gospel of Mark. And in Ephesians 4, 7 through 10, we're given a Pauline theological, if you would, spiritual interpretation of its implications. Ephesians 4:7 reads this, But each of us were given, was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it is said, when he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive. He gave gifts to his people. When it says he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who is ascended is the same one who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. Now, this idea of the ascension is, is, is connected to the idea of the incarnation. God came down in the person of Christ. And even in his death, he descended to the depth, the very depths of existence. And then in the ascension, he goes through all of existence. In the worldview of the ancient world, it it basically symbolizes that every part of creation, Christ has visited. With the implication that it is all now his. He broke the power of death when he descended into hell. And as he ascends into heaven, he is given God's throne. So it's very important in, if you would, the mythical worldview of of the first century, this idea of God conquering all the powers. And if you remember, the ancients believed that there was all kinds of levels of existence between here and heaven. So the planets were divinized and all that. So the implication of Jesus' ascension is that he is in charge of all. right? Okay. Now we know now that heaven isn't up because we have a different understanding of the nature of the cosmos. Heaven is of a whole different order, if you will, a whole different dimension than, than the one we live in. But nonetheless, the implication still is a powerful one for us, that everything exists is under Christ's redemptive power. Okay. He redeemed death and everything between death and heaven. John Calvin, who's the theological father of our tradition, and I'll talk more about him in July on those classes of what it means to be reformed. The the doctrine of ascension is a very important doctrine for him, Part of it is involved his debates with the Lutherans. We won't get into that today. But it also has a very important aspect of what his understanding of who Christ is, his doctrine of the Trinity. And even more important for you and I, the ascension for him helps us understand what Christ's relationship is with the living church, with you and I as believers. And he, gives, he talks about a number of different places. Um, one place in the Institutes, which is his kind of theological uh, summa, he gives three reasons that the, or three implications of the ascension. You know, the first one he says that in the ascension, Christ has opened up access to the heavenly kingdom, OK? That's his words exactly. In other words, because Christ has gone to heaven, we get to go there too. And it's not just about the future, because if we are in Christ, right, we're baptized into Christ. As the prayer says, you know, I and you, they and me, right? This idea that literally we are in heaven with Christ now because we are baptized into Christ. So there's this idea that he goes to prepare a place for us, what John's gospel says. So the ascension is a statement about the hope that we have in heaven, and that heaven now has been open to us. The second implication for Calvin is this idea, and actually uh, one of the kids said it, that he is our advocate. Uh, Now, sometimes we've talked about Jesus praying for us, but Jesus doesn't need to pray, right? Now now as part of the Trinity, the resurrected Christ doesn't need to pray for us. He, his very presence in heaven is his role as high priest for us. He is our advocate. He is the assurance that when we ask for forgiveness, what we just did in our prayer of confession, because Christ has ascended, our prayers of confession are not merely words. They open up our relationship with Christ and God every time we pray them. And so there's a sense where Christ being heaven is this idea of the ongoing reconciling work of humanity to God. And then the other idea that Calvin brings out is that, you know, because Christ is in heaven, then the power that he has used to conquer the forces of death, darkness, and sin are available to us. When we pray, okay, when we pray, we can pray with confidence that our prayers are in the very presence of God in heaven, and that the strength Christ exhibited in this earth in the way he faced the powers of evil and death, but the strength he had in conquering the forces of evil and death allow us to live lives of freedom here. I mean, one of the most important things for us to be able to do is to not live out of fear. So much of the evil that happens in this world so much of what's crippling in many of our lives, whether it be emotionally or psychologically, is based on this idea of, of fear. And some of it's very primal. I mean, <clears throat> I don't I don't take it lightly. Some of us were injured greatly at some point in our lives. Or some of us have experienced terrible trauma. And it, it's very hard to overcome that fear that is so much wrapped inside of us. But 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 listen, the good news is that Christ has overcome. Okay? And so when you're struggling with that fear, when you're struggling with those anxieties, you have an advocate. Okay? You're not alone in that. And through the power of Christ, you can overcome those things. It's okay if it takes a while. It's okay if you don't fully believe it now. But the ascension reminds us that we have a strong Savior. And your struggles are not your fault. And you have someone who will help you overcome that. We have a source of strength that we can face whatever we have to face each day. Whether it be the huge things, the worst days of our life, or the daily struggles. because <laughs> the sometimes they're the hardest ones, right? Okay. Sometimes we rally over the big stuff, but those small nagging doubts, those small nagging insecurities sometimes are the hardest ones to overcome. Those voices from the past that still haunt us. Because Christ has ascended, that's the voice you can hear. You know, there's not one interpretation that captures the significance of, of or the strangeness of the ascension of Christ. Again, it's a strange event, all right. And I think it's important. As a matter of fact, the poor disciples are just you know, they've been through all this kind of crazy. It's been a crazy trip, all right. We'll say that. Okay, well, a long, strange ride it has been. Okay, all right, a few deadheads out there. All right, nodding in approval. Okay, and you know, okay. So he he beat he, you know he beat death. He's back. We're all forgiven. So this is all going to have a happy ending. He's going to take us to heaven. And, and they go out on this mountain, right? And so they're all saying, all right, we're ready. We're going to go. And he lifts up, and they're looking up, and they're, they're trying. And, they're, and gravity is not, is not doing, you know, whatever gravity does for Jesus or how he's beaten gravity, gravity wins for those guys and women as well. And so they're looking up, and I didn't read the Acts passage, but I always thought it's kind of particularly cruel. Not only have they just seen Jesus raise up in the air, which doesn't happen every day, like never, but then the angels scold him. Why are you people looking up? Well, they're looking up because Jesus just floated up in the air. That's why they're looking up. And they think they're supposed to go too, right? Their anticipation was that there was only one resurrection, and they were to go with it, and they didn't have it didn't happen. The creed tells us that the Ascension places Jesus at the right hand of the Father, which represents authority, vindication, and the anticipation of the day of judgment. Fortunately, it also implies a place of mercy, the idea that he's our priest as well. But as I reflect on today's gospel reading in John 17, you have know, that after disciples lowered their eyes from the ascending Christ, who did they look at? each other. Jesus is Lord, but the Incarnation is extended in the shared life of his followers. The witness of the unity of the church is not something that can be enforced by ecclesial hierarchy, whether it be Roman Catholic, liberal Protestant, or the various versions of conservative Protestant pagan authoritarianism. But neither can it be ignored. See, that's the trouble. You can't make the unity happen. So the rest of Christians tend to ignore it, like the majority of evangelicals and the spiritual but not religious crowd. But one of the most important answers as where is Jesus after the Ascension is to look at the faces gathered around you. That's the brilliance of this gospel reading on Ascension Sunday. I had a conversation with a friend of mine Uh, a brilliant lawyer, Uh, and she's really one of the best theological, as a lay person, but she's a better theological mind than than many ministers I know. And she's been on a very interesting journey. She grew up in a very, very strict, ultra-conservative, Calvinist home. Uh, Her father is a professor and minister of some renown in the ultra-conservative reform circles, Presbyterian circles. And there was a period of her life where she had to get away from that Christianity, very judgmental. Um, but she's come back. I mean, she, she's come back to the faith. And it's a wonderful journey, and, and uh, I, I've been fortunate to be part of it with her. And she, I was talking to her the other day, and she had these two very different experiences. She went to Africa with her father, who's in his 80s, who's still preaching. And she was there with a bunch of very, very conservative people. And, and a number of them were very judgmental, you know, just spouting off all the worst of what you hear in uh, the uh, spurious uh, right-wing conspiracies. And so that was part of who she was with. Okay. A couple weeks later, she's at a major progressive Christian conference. And one of the things that dawned on her <laughs> as she was sitting there was how naturally judgmental, both groups are, of the other. And she said something to this effect. When you judge the judgers, you become the very thing you abhor. In other words, when you judge the judgers, guess what? You become a Judge. judge. The fact that we're called to be one, that the world will know that Christ is real, that we belong to Christ by by our oneness, may be one of the reasons that sometimes Christians' reputation isn't so great, right? We haven't quite pulled this one off. But we can do this here. We, We can begin by being here, by not judging the judges, by praying for those we disagree with, by realizing because Christ has conquered death and is in heaven, one of the most important implications for that is for us to seek to share that love and to try to seek to be one in Him as He's one with the Father. It's a gift, it's not something we can manufacture, but it is a gift we can reject. It is a grace for us to be able, in spite of our differences, to be able to love God together and share that love with the world. May we, on this Ascension Sunday, seek to receive the gift that Christ prays for us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen and Amen. I invite you to stand and say with me what we believe in the words of the Apostles' Creed.